Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. And we complete our series on Joshua with this episode, believe it or not. (laughs) Now, John and I want you to know that this is what we planned when we set out. But if you've been following along, you know that we've covered just eight of Joshua's 24 chapters so far. I want everyone to know that John has a background in finance. I have a background in engineering. We may have PhDs in theology and scriptural studies, but we really can do math. (laughs) So if your question here is, did we miscalculate on this one? The answer is no, we did this on purpose. (laughs) Right. And it will become clear as we go why. And also, just to be clear, I do want everyone to know John agreed to this. (laughs) You learned last time that John did his PhD in Joshua. When I pointed out that we did the entire Bible in five episodes, he reluctantly agreed to squeeze Joshua into the same space. Yeah. It is a book that is near and dear to him. He's captured so much detail in his study over the years, but we're going to make this happen. So let's dive in. Up to this point in the book of Joshua, we followed the Israelites from their preparations to enter the promised land, to their crossing of the Jordan River into the land, and on to their first encounters with the Canaanites. Sometimes it went well, sometimes not so well. And that correlated directly to their faithfulness to the covenant with their God, Yahweh. Remember, this story continues the story of the Pentateuch. Here in Joshua, God is still holy, and God still calls the people to holiness. What's more, God was giving them the land to live out this holiness and show the world what it meant to be in relationship with God. That meant the land had to be holy as well. Yes. One of the ways that God gave the covenant people to live out their faithfulness in the land was to avoid entanglements that bound them to other peoples who did not worship Yahweh. God knew that to become beholden to others by making a treaty, for example, would inevitably compromise them. Ah. It would split their loyalty between God and someone else, and it would put them into a position of religious vulnerability. They would be setting themselves up for conflict of interests as faithfulness to Yahweh competed with faithfulness to another people who did not acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God. And getting too close to other cultures would ultimately become a seduction to worship and serve other gods. God and God alone was to receive Israel's undivided and undiluted loyalty, 100%. So let's continue the story. After Israel's miraculous crossing of the Jordan River and the victory at Jericho, it then met defeat at Ai that followed disobedience. But Israel recovered at what we might call Ai (laughs) 2.0, but only after the sin, Uh the disobedience had been removed from God's presence. After all that, as chapter 9 opens, we get this. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Now, we've already heard via Rahab that the Canaanites know the Israelites are coming. Now we learn that many of them have decided to oppose God's people and ultimately God. But not everyone did this. In verse 2, we read, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. 
These Gibeonites knew they couldn't defeat Israel in battle, so they decided to try to outsmart them. It was an epic move of, if you can't beat them, join them. They tried to trick Israel into making a treaty with them. If they succeeded, it effectively made them safe from the coming incursion. Now remember, Joshua wasn't allowed to make treaties with the people of the land. Apparently the Gibeonites knew this. They actually lived nearby in the land, but they made themselves look like they had traveled a long way. They showed up all haggard and running low on food. Mm -hmm. Now to be fair, Joshua was suspicious. Their story was they came from far away. They had heard about Israel's mighty God, and they wanted to get on the right side of it all. Yeah, the text tells us the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Uh -oh. So, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, we can see it coming. Three days later, Israel learns the truth, but they're stuck with their treaty. They're in exactly the position that God had told them not to get themselves into. Okay. Why? We just heard it. They did not inquire of the Lord. Gibeon had appealed to their sympathy as seemingly weary travelers and then had buttered them up by appealing to their ego as willing to strike a treaty in which Israel would be the dominant party and Gibeon would be the weaker vassal. The Israelites were duped. The Gibeonites confessed to their ruse, and Joshua made them servants. But Israel had made it impossible to take their land. So if chapter 9 told us about this alliance of Canaanite kings that intended to resist Israel and its God, as we enter chapters 10 through 12, that alliance gets wind of the Gibeonites' treaty with Israel. The treaty means Gibeon fights for Joshua when the time comes. So the Canaanite alliance naturally decides to strike first. If they take out the Gibeonites, they diminish Joshua's strength. Of course, the Gibeonites immediately summon Joshua for protection. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and Joshua marched his army from Gilgal. Remember that Gilgal was near the Jordan River and home base for Israel's camp since crossing the Jordan. Joshua managed to surprise the enemy. The victory was complete. Of course, remember what we said about the language that gets used here, and even the natural elements joined in the fight. The story is dramatically told. One part of that story included Joshua praying for the sun and the moon to stand still until the conclusion of the battle. And according to the text, that's just what they do. Hmm. It is natural to ask what exactly that means and for what it's worth. When Galileo first observed the moons orbiting Jupiter, this was the most compelling evidence yet that the Earth orbited the sun. Although by that point, Earth orbiting the sun was the assumption of scientists both within the church and without. Nevertheless, we have this great exchange of letters where Galileo responds to a noblewoman writing to him specifically about this. And the Italian noblewoman asks, if the Earth orbits the sun, what on earth is the book of Joshua describing? Now, John, I expect you have something to say here, and it probably has to do with literary features of the text. Yeah, I probably don't go in the same direction that Galileo goes. I, I doubt it. Um, <laughs> and we don't have time to survey the entire field of, of this discussion. Right. It's a really big field. But we should point out that this comes as a section of poetry, and that's most likely to be understood figuratively, okay. as is poetry in general, right? The poetic standing still of the sun uh, and the moon 
probably means that God figuratively directed the sun and the moon to join in the battle for Israel okay. in the way that the stars fought for Israel and judges during the time of Deborah. Or if God isn't calling them to fight, they were called to stand still in silent amazement as God fought for Israel. There's examples of that in Habakkuk chapter 3, and in the Psalms, nature responds in praise to God's work with rivers clapping their hands and mountains and trees singing for joy, for example. Mm -hmm. The elements, the natural elements are involved in a way as they watch God do what God does. So rather than passing by routinely in the sky, the sun and the moon either stop to join the battle or... They stop to praise and worship God for his might on display in the battle. Okay. God is, of course, sovereign over nature, and God can effect a full stop of any heavenly body as an astronomical or geophysical phenomenon. We're not making any suggestion here that the poetry should be read figuratively because of a concern about that, but simply because the literary features suggest that this is exactly what's going on. Well, after an account of how Joshua chased down the opposing kings, the rest of chapter 10 is a mini catalog of total, sweeping, absolute victory over the cities of the South. Again, remember what we said last episode about the language that gets used here. In every case, the cities were totally destroyed and no one was spared. Nothing and no one was left standing, according to the narrative. Chapter 10 ends with this, and listen to it carefully. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to, wait for it, Gibeon. Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So hold that thought for a moment. Likewise, when we come to chapter 11, the very same thing happened to the northern cities. Joshua's strategy had been to enter the land and cut through the middle, campaigning first to the south and then to the north. Over and over, we read of total annihilation, cities totally destroyed, all plunder and livestock carried off, and this not sparing anyone that breathed. In verse 15 of chapter 11, the conclusion of the northern campaign is that Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. The next verse says, so Joshua took this entire land, and after some more complete victorious destruction, verse 23 wraps it up with this. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Chapter 12 mostly lists that catalog of the kings and cities that Israel defeated. And it's impressive. So the promised land was wiped out completely. (laughs) It was now entirely uninhabited because nothing breathing had been left alive. And every square inch of it was firmly in Israel's hands. That's what the text has just told us, right? Right. Well, (laughs) not so fast. If you've been listening carefully to the story along the way in this series, you might be anticipating that there's more to it than that. As we just said, 
There was nothing and no one left in Canaan. So game over, right? Right. But here's how the very next chapter, chapter 13, opens. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Huh? What? (laughs) And the next five verses proceed to list all of that land that wasn't taken, but still remained in Canaanite hands. Verse 13, for example, says, But the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. Okay. If we keep reading, we find out that they didn't dislodge the Jebusites from Jerusalem, nor the Canaanites from Gezer, nor the Canaanites from some of the towns in the region that was to belong to the tribe of Manasseh. So this isn't even all of them, Ron. Right, (laughs) okay. There are more in Joshua and still more in the opening chapter of the next book of the Bible, Judges. Okay. So, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound like total victory to me. Right. In Joshua's farewell address in chapter 23, he tells the Israelites, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their God or swear by them. Then he says, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Now wait. If there were no survivors, who is there left to associate with, Mm -hmm. or intermarry with, or assimilate religiously with? Which is it? This is all scripture, but... They clearly don't agree on the surface. Okay. Now, remember we said in the last episode that we have to hear ancient stories on their own terms. Yeah. We have to let ancient storytelling be ancient storytelling and not try to force it into our modern molds. Specifically here, storytelling around warfare had a rhetorical flair that depicted battles in very absolute language of total victory for the winner, and total defeat and permanent annihilation of the loser. There's no middle ground in ancient (laughs) battle accounts. Sure. (laughs) Even though neither victory nor defeat is usually as absolute as we read in these ancient accounts. It's not inaccuracy. It's the rhetorical technique typical to the setting. It's the way these stories were told. Okay. Our job isn't to judge that and to try to get it to be something else. Our job is to try to read it well. Fair enough. Both the commands for total destruction and the reports of total destruction have to be read in this context. It's clear from the narrative that Israel did what God commanded them to do. Joshua carried out his instructions faithfully. And that seems to have been something short of Canaanite genocide and annihilation. The two sets of facts sitting side by side in Joshua here aren't in conflict at all when we acknowledge the literary conventions in play. Okay. The battle accounts told in such sweeping terms give way to a different kind of narrative where the concern isn't recounting warfare, but allotting the inheritances according to God's tribal assignments. There, the realities of the situation on the ground are relevant to what happens next, namely the ability of the Israelites to settle in the towns and cities that are allotted to them. Now, one more cultural contextual note might be worth a mention here too, Ron. Today, 
we understand the ownership of land and the idea of rights of ownership. The land upon which I live is mine, and you have no right to take it, right? I hold the deed, and that settles it. Right. However, that's not even close to the way the ancient Near East worked when we're talking about communities and groups of people. The fact that someone lived in a particular area did not mean it was theirs in our modern sense of ownership and, quote, rights. Land, quote, belonged to whoever could take it and hold it. (laughs) Ouch. I I get what you're saying. That hurts, but yeah, got it. Yeah, the language of driving out a certain people didn't have the sense that we would give it today of disenfranchisement and injustice and so on. That perspective didn't exist in this arena. Okay. As we pointed out earlier in the series, the promised land was God's to give in the first place. Right. It didn't belong to the Canaanites by right. They were only tenants in the land, just as Israel would be. If God gave Israel victory in the land, then it belonged to Israel because God was strong enough to lead them into it. And as God's people, Israel was strong enough to receive it and take up residence in it. No one reading the book of Joshua in its historical and cultural context uses the words unfair or unjust or just plain mean (laughs) to describe what's happening because those ideas simply don't fit. This is where we come to a lengthy section of Joshua. It's chapters 13 through 21, and it details how the land was apportioned to the various Israelite tribes. And this is why we're covering so much of Joshua in one episode. This section of chapters can be difficult for the casual reader to digest, but it is an important section. It puts front and center that God not only promised the land to Israel, but also carefully and deliberately distributed it to them. The exhaustive list shows how the land was apportioned, and it validated God's covenant faithfulness. It established a tangible claim connected to that faithfulness. In short, God keeps God's promises. What God pledges, God delivers. Ron, to reprise some comments from earlier episodes, these exhaustive lists of tribal land allotment do give us what some might call an excruciating amount of detail. (laughs) Certain tribal borders ran up one hill, turned back at this town, ran along this brook, and and so on. It's amazing geographical detail. Stunning, in fact, and to some readers, maybe even (laughs) mind-numbing. But as you said, there's a deep theological significance to what's happening in these chapters. There's a pattern to how these land allotments unfold. And while we're not going to try to walk through all of that material in a podcast format, we recognize that what's on display, as you said, Ron, is God's covenant faithfulness as he fulfills his promises to the nation, to the tribes, to the clans and families, and in some cases, even to the individuals to whom he made those promises. His faithfulness and concern is both broad and deep, and they leave nothing and no one out. After those tribal allotments, chapters 20 and 21 deal with a couple of special concerns, the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities. 
At this point, every tribe except for the tribe of Levi has received an inheritance. As the priestly tribe, they didn't have a territory of their own. They only had certain designated cities. The cities of refuge were a subset of those cities given to the Levites. So of the 48 Levitical cities, six were designated as cities of refuge. This had all been anticipated in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We've seen this before, and what we have in Joshua is simply the carrying out of that legislation and the naming of the cities. Cities of refuge were places to which a person guilty of the accidental killing of another could flee for safety from vengeance at the hands of the aggrieved family and do that until his case was heard before an assembly. Three such cities were designated on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west. The allotment for the Levites were cities for them to live in and to graze their cattle nearby, but that was all the land inheritance they received. They were not to be geographically separated from the other tribes. Instead, they were scattered among them in order to carry out their duties. Finally, we come to Joshua's farewells in chapters 22 through 24 of the book, and this concludes the book of Joshua. We don't know exactly how much time passed before this happened, just that it followed the events in the previous chapter. Joshua gives a farewell address to the tribes who lived east of the Jordan. They were allowed to return to their inheritance, having fulfilled their commitments, and they go with Joshua's blessing and his exhortation to remain faithful to God. Next comes a crisis when those tribes east of the Jordan decide to build a large altar on the west bank of the river as an act of unity and solidarity with the tribes living west of the Jordan, but the gesture gets misunderstood as rebellion against God and disloyalty to the nation. The western tribes are about to mobilize for war against their countrymen, but it all gets sorted out. No bloodshed ensues. The last two chapters of Joshua are Joshua's final speeches. Again, it seems that some time has passed, but we don't know exactly how much. Chapter 23 consists of Joshua's exhortations and admonitions, his encouragements and warnings. Chapter 24 includes more of these, but also a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, which was the place where God had first promised to give the land to Abraham. Joshua rehearses the history of how God had dealt graciously with his people, going all the way back to Abraham's father, Terah. Joshua and the people renew, affirm, and re-ratify their covenant with God, reiterating God's blessing and swearing not to forsake him in favor of other gods who were worshipped in this land. This is where we get the famous verses. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. Many of us have those hanging on our walls in our homes. (laughs) Right, Uh, John, since we talked about PhD dissertations last time, I do want to say this. When the Septuagint translators rendered that verse into Greek, choose you this day whom you will serve, they reached for a very specific set of vocabulary. They used the Greek verb latruo, And the argument of my dissertation is that those translators turned that Greek word into technical vocabulary. It means something that may only be rendered to God. Hmm. And we get a hint of that in our word idolatry, which comes from the Greek idolo, latreia. That's taking what should only be given to God and offering it to idols. But you've shown great restraint as we surveyed this book that you did your (laughs) dissertation on. I'll do the same now. Back to you. (laughs) The, The gift of the land was nothing less than God's grace on the people. Now the people had to choose. No one would force them or coerce them. 
They were unlike the Canaanites who had the ability to embrace many gods. The Canaanites didn't have to choose, but Israel did have to choose. They had to either embrace the one God and reject all others or reject Yahweh. The people promised to serve Yahweh and no others in their covenant renewal ceremony here as the book closes. And the covenant is witnessed and sealed, and the book ends with the report of Joshua's death at the age of 110. Wow. And then he's buried. Mm -hmm. And in a final note of Pentateuchal fulfillment, we're told that Joseph's bones that had been brought up from Egypt were then buried at Shechem. So here we are, Ron, wrapping up another series. We made it. (laughs) We made it. Looking back over the book of Joshua, we see God keeping the Abrahamic land promise. Right. The land goal that the whole Pentateuch pointed to was completed. God's commitment to the people and the people's commitment to God were reiterated and solidified. And we notice that nothing that God promised had failed. Right. Centuries of waiting had come to fulfillment. Now, this is a book about covenant promises and faithfulness. And it's a book about God's holiness and the people's response to that holiness. We see the outworking of God's larger purposes as anyone who chooses can join the covenant community whose entire identity is bound up in who they are as God's people. What is God doing in the world to redeem it? God is using a particular people in a particular land who are to live out a calling to be a kingdom of priests such that all of humanity might live out its created purpose to bear the image of God in the world. Okay. When the book closes, Israel seems at peace with itself and at peace in its covenant relationship with God. However, the seeds have been sown for problems ahead because we remember that although the land had been completely taken, Mm -hmm. the land had not been completely taken. Right. So if that doesn't make sense, rewind Rewind. and listen to the discussion on Joshua 13 again. One of God's main concerns had been all along that Israel would be seduced by Canaanite religion. And the makings of that outcome were still present in the land. Although it seems harmonious and peaceful for the time being, it wouldn't last. The next book, which is the book of Judges, makes us realize that this is the calm before the storm. And there we have to wrap it up. That's the end of the series on Joshua. In the next episode, we're back to the New Testament for a short series on the letter of 1 John. It's not a long letter, but it's the source of some excerpts that people love to quote. It's things like God is love, but those little excerpts are quickly mangled into unrecognizable platitudes if you don't pay close attention to what's going on in that book. Mm. That author is spitting mad and has several important points to make. So join us as we untangle that puzzle. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. Thank you.